Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast. Uh, This is actually two weeks in a row that I'm recording this, which feels like a record lately. So it's good to be back with you as we continue to get into this sermon series that we're calling The Bible Doesn't Tell Me So, looking at phrases that people may assume are in the Bible, but actually they aren't. Uh, Before we get into the phrase that we are looking at today, let me first read the scripture that we're going to be reflecting on as well. This comes from the Gospel of John, and it's the very tail end of chapter 7, and then it'll be uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. May God's blessing be on the hearing and living out of this word. So there was an article I was reading the other day when school started about uh, something happening on the trains that will make the trains here in Chicago even more crowded, and that is the return of students as they go to school in the morning and the humongous backpacks that they wear as they get onto the train. Uh, and we shouldn't pick on students. I see plenty of adults do this too. They, they get on the train and they forget that uh, they have essentially attached a body part onto their back. So when they turn a certain way, that takes up a lot of space, especially in rush hours. So it is, especially if the trains are running a little bit late, you are really crammed into the train and backpacks make the space even more crowded. Well, backpacks are not the only reason that sometimes we are in need of space on the trains. Sometimes you'll go on the train and someone has decided to take a nap over three or four seats or so. And of course, there is the dilemma that seems to be happening in our society that people call manspreading, where it seems like more often than not it is men who, when they take a seat, uh, decide to essentially spread their legs out so that they are taking space up on the seats to either side of them. And there are lots of uh, responses to manspreading, of course, and lots of opinions about that. But all of these things, whether it's a backpack or whether it's someone taking a nap or whether it is someone spreading their legs out, they are essentially taking up space. And when we are on the trains, or really in any parts of our lives, some of us feel like, I really need and desire and want my space so I don't feel so crowded. This whole concept of space came to mind when I was reflecting uh, on the phrase that we're focusing on today, this Sunday, and on the passage that I just read from John. I'll explain more uh, about the passage in a moment. Uh, But first, again, 
overview of the sermon series, we're taking a look at these phrases that some people use and may even believe that are in the Bible, but actually they're not. So today, the phrase that we're looking at is, hate the sin, love the sinner, which has become uh, fairly popular. It seems like more and more in recent years, so much so that it is in the hit musical Hamilton from the song, The Room Where It Happens, and where uh, Hamilton and Burr are going back and forth uh, about what it takes to be in the room where it happens. And Hamilton says, well, hate the sin, love the sinner. I was going to try to do a rap there, but I decided not to go there. Maybe it was when I preached this live. Anyway, this phrase, as I noted, seems like it's become more popular. Some attribute this quote to Gandhi, of all people. But when people talk about that, in fact, if you Google um, hate the sin, love the sinner, and you click on images, Gandhi will come up with him as the person who said this. And in some ways, that's true, but many people only take the very short snippet of his entire quote. And the entire quote that Gandhi said is this, hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. So, Gandhi talking about what does it mean to hate sin and love sinners, uh, but giving it a much broader context and essentially saying people say this all the time, but hardly anybody actually follows this. And in my experience, and I've tried hard to think about the different contexts where this phrase is used, but it seems like, especially in recent years, about 90% of the time I hear this when people are having conversations about our LGBTQ friends. Now, I'm going to give some people the benefit of the doubt here. It's used by people, I suppose, who think that they're being magnanimous. In their mind, I'm saying, they're saying, I love you, I just don't love your behavior. Now, our LGBTQ friends, of course, hear this as somebody saying, I love you, I just don't love who you are. Now, an LGBTQ person, of course, is much more than their orientation. It's an important part of who they are, but it's not all that who they are. And you can begin to see how this phrase can be harmful to them and hurtful. So there's at least two ways of taking apart this phrase, two ways of going about it and looking at it. And one is certainly that if somebody says this, we can get into a debate with the person about the whole nature of sin. So if somebody says to somebody who's gay, well, you know, I hate the sin, love the sin. I love you. I just hate this sin that you're involved in. And the immediate reaction, and I've done this too, is to really get into a debate with them about, well, let's take a look and see really, is this a sin? And you can get into that conversation. And I've gotten into that conversation many, many times over the years. And you can begin to do some biblical exploration about what does the Bible really say uh, about homosexuality? Is it a sin? And what do the scriptures say? And if the scriptures believe or do say this, if you believe it says, does that mean it's the final word on something. So you can get to a long conversation about a biblical interpretation, which I encourage and I think is great to to go about in doing that. Of course, I would argue with somebody who says, hate the sin, love the sinner. I would uh, certainly vehemently argue that homosexuality is not a sin, uh, taking a look at biblical interpretation and also my own experience. But today, instead of kind of going at this and looking at this phrase in arguing whether something is indeed a sin, what I'd like to do instead is to explore what the person is saying 
but also what the person is doing and what this says about themselves when they uh, utter this phrase. Because when somebody says that, hate the sin, love the sinner, they are immediately placing themselves in the place of judgment. And they are saying that I am, I am deeming whatever it is the conversation is going on about. I am deeming this a sin. And you'll notice, too, whenever somebody uses this phrase, there's a period at the end of that. There's no question mark. There's no ellipse. They are not usually not saying it as a way to, let's have conversation about this. They're not saying, is this a sin? Let's, let's go out for coffee and, and really hash this out. No, often when somebody uses this phrase, there's finality. Friends, this is conversational manspreading. There is giving no room at all for storytelling. There's giving no room for conversation when somebody makes this declaration. Now, one thing I didn't say, and probably we need to say, that this phrase is not in the Bible. So we need to make that clear. Jesus never said, hate the sin, love the sinner, though there are more than a few folks who would believe that, in fact, he did. Instead, let's take a look at what Jesus did, especially in this scripture today. So it's a really interesting passage. passage. Uh, Some early manuscripts that we have taken uh, for the Bible that we know today don't include this story. So it's it's interesting to take a look at it. Some scholars believe that parts of it uh, don't really match up with the rest of the Gospel of John, but yet I still think it's a really powerful thing for us to reflect on. So here we have a group of religious authorities, and they bring this woman to Jesus. And they say that this woman was caught in adultery. Now, here I'm relying on the, a really wonderful biblical scholar named Dr. Gail O'Day, who I just found out this week. Uh, she passed away last week from a battle with cancer. And if you ever are interested in reading more about the Gospel of John, the New Interpreter's Bible, she writes her own commentary on John. It's just really beautiful, uh, really meaningful ways, the way that she unpacks uh, this sometimes difficult gospel to, to comprehend. But anyway, Dr. O'Day says that uh, from the very beginning, the, the authorities, the scholars who bring this woman are already going about this in a way that has many irregularities. And it begins to show that they're not really interested uh, in convicting this woman. They might be, but perhaps the bigger reason, what they really want to do is entrap Jesus. So they're bringing a pretty lousy case, as it were, in front of Jesus. First of all, they bring no witnesses to sustain the case. So Jesus is not provided with the information that he might need to to give his own opinion. Uh, And then second, they ignore that the men who might be involved in this adulterous relationship. Mosaic law, so we read in the Older Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can pick up passages that do state that adulterers should get the death penalty, but it also said that men should too. And perhaps not surprisingly, men are nowhere to be found in this particular scenario. So we see here that the authorities are not really interested in Jesus' interpretation of the law, but really they just want to entrap him uh, because they are upset with the things that Jesus is saying and the people with whom Jesus is hanging out with. So here we have a scenario, a woman, she has not heard hardly at all, certainly not at the beginning of this passage, nor is she believed that we can tell. With all of the conversation in the last few weeks uh, going on with the um, Supreme Court hearings, this seems like a very timely passage for us to reflect on. A woman who is really not heard from at first, and I'm assuming is not believed either. So what does Jesus do? 
When confronted with this scenario, how does Jesus respond? Normally, I think the authorities were kind of hoping that he would go toe-to-toe with him, get into this big theological and uh, religiously legal argument about what Mosaic law says or doesn't say. Uh, But instead, Jesus turns this whole conversation on its head, which Jesus is known to do time and time again for him to take a, a different path, for him to go a different way. I came across this really funny video series that was produced a couple years ago by the comedic duo of the Sklar Brothers. And they did this through PBS, and they created this video series called You're Doing It Wrong, where they will take all these different things that we take for granted, and then they'll take four or five minutes and unpack it, essentially to say that most people are probably doing this thing wrong. So whether that is uh, washing your hands or picking up broken glass on the ground, or one that I watched through the whole way is uh, how do we get rid of hiccups? Of course, scaring people is not the way to do it. And then they give tips on how to uh, get rid of the hiccups. Uh, and so it's a really funny video series where they're, the consistent theme, of course, throughout is that whatever you think you're doing, you're probably doing it wrong. And then they show you the way to do it right. Here, I can imagine that people time and again would say to Jesus, you're doing it wrong. This is not the way that you interact with people. This is not the kind of uh, language that you should use about who God is. These are not the things that you should claim for yourself. You're doing this all wrong. And once again, instead of going toe-to-toe with these authorities, Jesus, in a sense, does it wrong in the eyes of the authorities. He does not engage with them in the way that they want. Instead, he gets on the ground and he begins to draw. Now, there have been kind of debates over the years. People get into this. I don't know why they really spend their time, but they try to figure out what's Jesus actually riding on the ground here. And we don't know for sure. What I think Jesus is doing is that he's creating space. So rather than going up and getting into this argument, he's stepping back. I have no idea if this is true. What I would love to happen is to believe that he's actually drawing a circle. Because the authorities have tried to draw circles around two people here. They're trying to draw a circle to entrap Jesus, and they're trying to draw a circle around the woman so that they can condemn her. But instead, Jesus steps away from this to create space, and maybe he's drawing, either literally or metaphorically, he's drawing the circle wider to encompass not just Jesus and the woman, but instead He is drawing a circle so that these authorities are included in this whole conversation too. He goes beyond just this little legal question, and he goes to the more larger encompassing issue of sin. So we see here in verse 7, again, I'm quoting Dr. O'Day, Jesus calls for the scribes and Pharisees to accountability for their past actions and their relationship to the law which they had been willing to distort their pre- to press their case against Jesus. So Jesus, as he is writing, draws the circle wide to include the authorities and asks the question to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So by saying that, of course, he includes the authorities and they are speechless. Does Jesus say, We should just hate the sin, love the sinner. No, Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus is the one who finally allows the woman to speak. He asks her a question. Has anyone 
come up to you? Where are these women? Or I'm sorry, where are these men? Where are these others? Have they condemned you? And the woman says simply, no, they have not. And so the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, again, not hate the sin, love the sinner, but instead Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And I think, and then he says, go on and do not sin anymore. And I think people also love to jump on this last part too. They say, yeah, see, Jesus is, is kind of uh, chastising this woman, do not sin again. But Jesus says this, or a variation of this to everybody. We see in the Gospel of John, after Jesus heals a man uh, so that he is no longer blind, Jesus says, see, you've been, you've been made well. And he says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And he continues, not just in the Gospel of John, but in other places too, Jesus either uh, telling people to change their hearts and lives, but also telling them not to sin. So he's not necessarily just picking on this woman, but instead encouraging her to, to live a different kind of life. Not just her, but I think that is the call for all of us that Jesus speaks to uh, the people in the day and then continues to speak through the Holy Spirit to us now. So here we see, I think, a beautiful way that Jesus is turning things on their head and engaging with those who want to get into this argument and leave no space. But instead, Jesus shows us that love and grace means that we are to leave room for story, that we are to allow a person to speak their truth so that we are drawing our circle wider, so that it is not just our own beliefs and opinions that matter, but instead we're drawing it wider so that someone else might engage in conversation. And I think there are lots of ways that we behave so that we shut down conversation. We shut down story. We shut down making room and space for someone else to share their own perspective and where they are coming from. That's one of the things, one of the many things that we hope to accomplish with part of a, the, where there are three main areas of focus right now at Urban Village that we're really engaging in, including to live into this audit that we participated last year uh, for us to be a more anti-racist church, a more anti-racist organization. So, and part of that is doing things called caucuses, where we separate. So we have individuals who are white and individuals of color in separate rooms to give space for people to share where they're coming from and then coming together. Again, trying to widen the circle to hear story and hear different experiences. Because I think what happens so often is there's that knee-jerk reaction whenever we have conversations around race. So it's not unusual, of course, for a white person to get defensive and say, I'm not racist. And when we, the person says that, that shuts down, that leaves no room for any kind of story or conversation. Or saying that we've heard this past week more than once, that something to the fact that, well, that, that happened decades ago. Why can't people just get over it? Why can't this woman just get over it? And when people make that statement, it shuts down any kind of conversation. It leaves no room at all for a person's story, for a person to share the experience that they went through, when we make those definitive statements, whether it be I'm not racist or, you know, just hate the sin, love the sinner, we draw that circle very narrowly. 
And we don't allow any kind of love and grace to inhabit the space that Jesus showed us can happen. And it doesn't happen in these large ways, too. It can happen in smaller interpersonal relationships, too. I remember a few years ago, I was meeting with one of our interns. uh, And at times, what I I, I'm guilty of just going through a to-do list. So on this particular day, uh, her name is Cantina, and Cantina was going through a challenging time in her own life. But in my head, I had things that were on her to-do list, things that she was tasked to accomplish as being an intern at the South Loop site. And so I was not listening at all to where she was coming from on that particular day. Instead, I was literally going through the list of things that she was supposed to be doing. And at one point, she just looked at me and said, I need you to listen to me today. Just really listen to all the different struggles that she was going with on that particular week. And I felt awful because she was absolutely right. I was making definitive actions and statements. I was leaving no room for her to really share how she was and what was going on in her life. Instead, I was shutting her down. I didn't mean to do that, and it wasn't consciously doing that. But because I was so focused on my own agenda and my own self that I was not leaving any kind of room at all for her to express where she was. So I want us, when we think about this phrase hate the sin, love the sinner, in addition to acknowledging the harm and pain that this can do, particularly when this is used with uh, the LGBTQ population. But also, I want us to think about this as a reminder for the other ways that we shut down others by the definitive statements that we make when we put ourselves in the place as judge and jury. And we leave no room at all for someone to begin to uh, express their own perspective, and and share their own reflections. I think Jesus shows us a better way. Rather than going toe-to-toe, Jesus draws the circle wide. And I hope that that can show us a better way, too, for us to engage and hear the stories of others. Friends, that is our call to, to draw this circle so much wider so that others are included and that we can be in relationship and so that we don't create less space for somebody else. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening uh, to the podcast today. I will be back again next week. We'll finish up our sermon series next Sunday, so I'll be uh, with you then. Uh, until then, you can reach out to me, my website, christiankuhn.com, or you can email me, chris at urbanvillagechurch.org. Always happy to interact with folks if you have questions or concerns. Uh, until the next time, friends, may the peace of Christ be with you. My wisdom, and thou my true word, I-